Welcome to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Krauss. Wow, so it's been a while. How are you all holding up? On our last episode, uh, it was December 2019, and at that time, the biggest things that we needed to worry about here at the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology were getting through the holidays, and then our center, which produces the podcast, had to prepare for a huge presentation to the National Science Foundation, where we basically told a review panel about everything that we've been doing with the, the National Science Foundation's money for the past five years, and everything we want to do if they could give us funding for five more years. Unfortunately, we won't have any news about the results of that for a while, uh, but that explains why the podcast was on hiatus through January and February while we were preparing for that presentation. Uh, and then March happened. Which brings us to uh, our first mini-interview for this episode as we return back from several months away. I've invited doctoral student Paige Kinsley to talk with us a little bit about what the COVID-19 pandemic looks like from one person's perspective in terms of chemistry labs and graduate school. So we could spend hours on this topic, and maybe we will in the future, but for now we're going to start with just a quick chat, and then we'll move on to the main feature for this episode, which is an interview that we recorded last fall with photographer Felice Frankel. Uh, but first, Paige, welcome to the podcast. Uh, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me, Miriam. Yeah, um, thanks for talking with us today for this little mini interview. Um, would you introduce yourself briefly? Sure, yeah. Hi, my name is Paige Kinsley. Um, I'm a third year PhD candidate as of yesterday um, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in Bob Hamer's group. Um, and my research is focused on sort of um, designing tools to understand where nanoparticles go in biological systems. So as a chemistry graduate student, how has your work life and home life changed in the last couple of months? Uh, well, it's a little bit hard to do lab work at home. Um, I think especially my boyfriend would appreciate me starting to do a little bit crazy chemistry at home, so I've avoided doing that. So it's been a lot of desk work. I've had to essentially create an office space for myself uh, at home because I never really had to work from home uh, in graduate school um, before this. So I, we, I turned one of their second bedrooms into uh, an office space um, and have uh, learned that my posture is very bad um, more than anything else. My back has complained a lot working from a desk every day um, where normally I would be working in lab for the most part. So um, it's been a little, bit, a little bit strange, to be honest. Yeah. Um, as far as things to do, papers, reading lots of literature is something that is easy to do at a computer. So try to pick up on that. Um, I had a third year exam that I had to prepare for so that I took about a month um, to work on that. So I was very fortunate, honestly, to have something that required a lot of computer work. Uh, I know some of my peers are not necessarily as lucky and sort of have had to find other things to fill their time a little bit more. Yeah, so I should say, you know, obviously, um, we're very fortunate in the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology that our, you know, our funding is continuing. And it's a question of not whether we have jobs, but how we make this time, um, you know, how we make this time work for ourselves. And you, you kind of made a joke about not wanting to do chemistry experiments at your house. But can you talk a little bit more about what, um, you know, what kinds of experiments do you do? And other than it maybe being stinky or whatever people might imagine a chemistry experiment is like, why can't you do that from home? 
That's a good question because there is some chemistry that you can very easily do at home. So a lot of the work that I do um, requires kind of yucky chemicals that should not be in anyone's home if we can help it. And so a lot of the stuff that I do, sometimes I'm making organic molecules that require reagents that um, tend to be sort of dangerous, whether they're flammable or they cause cancer or something like that. Uh, so having those in the home would be bad. It also just requires, um, I, I do a lot of analytical chemistries. What, what, what that means is essentially I measure a lot of things using lots of different instruments. And those instruments um, are not take homeable, I guess is the term. Um, a lot of them are pretty expensive and require like vacuum pumps or um, high en power energy sources or something like that. So um, I, again, I don't think my boyfriend would be uh, very happy if I brought an x-ray source home because again, it wouldn't be particularly safe. So it's sort of a matter of just the, the things I require for my research are unfortunately not sh shrinkable or, or movable into the home. Um, I do have some friends, however, in the chemistry department who are theoretical chemists, so a lot of their work is on a computer. So I think for them, their day-to-day -day hasn't changed much. It's just where they're doing their chemistry now. Instead of doing it um, in the chemistry building, they're just doing it at home. So mm -hmm. I think their life, um, their day-to-day like, -day is uh, not nearly as impacted as, as people who need to do a little bit more wet chemistry, more lab work. Yeah. So for people who, you know, aren't familiar with chemistry labs at a university or whatever, what is what is the campus doing? Is the is the chemistry building just completely empty right now? Are there do you need to worry about those vacuum tubes sitting idle for a long time? How does that work? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the chemistry building is totally shut down at this point. Um, I think only essential personnel are allowed in. And I think the only essential person um, that I know of is our, our building manager who keeps the lights on and makes sure like nothing sets on fire. Um, so he has, uh, I know he's still going to work every day, um, but all of the grad students and researchers are at home at this point. They're not doing any work. Um, we do have some instrumentation that requires specific types of gas cylinders or things like that. So we go in probably once a month or like one of us goes in once a month and checks on things to make sure um, everything, all of the instruments are still up and running correctly because um, we didn't, most of them you don't really want to turn off once they're on. <laughs> so yeah, so it's, it's, the building is totally shut down at this point, which is sort of a, a strange thing. Yeah, I know at the University of Minnesota, they're, they're calling it um, extended reduced operations for the whole campus. So yeah, it is, it is strange times as everyone yeah. knows. I think something in the Hamers group, we're lucky that all of the chemistry that we do requires nothing living, so like no bacteria or anything bigger than that. Um, I know some of the collaborators, I know like at Minnesota and also University of Milwaukee that we work with in the CSN grow things that are alive. So I have to imagine um, that's harder since you have to sort of decide what, like literally what lives and what dies in this situation and whether it's worth keeping something alive or like letting your bacterial strain die and then sort of resetting it up once we're back in lab. So um, in the Hamers group, we don't have to keep anything alive, which is, I think, fortunate for us, if anything. Yeah, well, hopefully, you know, if we're lucky over the next couple months, we will start the conversation will shift toward how do we gradually and safely 
start resuming some lab work but of course we don't know at this point yeah Um, (laughs) but yeah well i think that's all we have time for for today like i said i know we could talk about the the complexities of the situation endlessly but thank you so much for sharing your perspective and uh congratulations on passing your third year exam (laughs) thank you so much and it was wonderful talking with you thanks again Paige. Like I said, we could, and many of us have, spend hours talking about COVID-19 and how it's affecting our work and our lives, but for the rest of this episode, we're going to give you a little break with something completely different. An interview with Felice Frankel, a research scientist at MIT whose specialty is creating visualizations of scientific research. I know, perfect for audio format. Sometimes Felice is photographing the research itself, whether that's a material or a device or a tool. Uh, Sometimes she's creating visual metaphors to help explain scientific concepts. So I think you'll agree that her enthusiasm and her encouragement are super engaging, and she makes me want to go out and try making cool images myself. So without further ado, here is our interview with Felice Frankel, conducted by graduate student Stephanie Mitchell. Thank you so much for joining us on the Sustainable Nano Podcast. absolutely delighted to be here. Um, Would you introduce yourself a little bit? You bet. I'm Felice Frankel. I am a science photographer at MIT. My title is research scientist, but... Uh, that's just to kind of give me a line item somewhere. Um, One of the things that I would like to quickly say is that I don't have a graduate degree. People call me doctor. I'm not a doctor, and that's very important to say from the get-go. I have the best job in the world. I work at a place that has some of the most brilliant people in the world who are so excited about talking about their work And every single assignment I have, I'm learning something. Because in order for me to visualize it, either with an illustration or mostly photographs, and I can get into that later, how I do that. A lot of stuff is not photographable, like nanoscience, for example. (laughs) Exactly. So we have to come up with uh, metaphors that somewhat give the idea of scale, and we can talk about that as well. But... Basically, I have to sit down with the researchers. They come to me. They say we're about to submit and we'd love to get a cover and all that stuff, which I'm very privileged to have been able to help them with. And uh, when they describe to me what it is that they're doing, I'm learning the science in order to visualize it, if possible. Of course, as I said, often I can't. So therefore, I have to create some sort of metaphor and since I can't draw for beans, but I can make pictures, I make pieces of pictures and put them together to create an image that actually does not exist. Mm-hmm. And so, which is what illustrators do. They just do it without a camera. So I'm, I'm trying to encourage my students to consider be, looking at photo illustration mm-hmm. as a means of representing what they're doing. And I'm, at this point, uh, I, well, I started uh, as with an undergraduate degree in biology, minor in chemistry. I did do some research in a cancer research uh, institute in Columbia uh, at, uh, in New York City. Uh, life came by and, and brought marriage and children, and I started volunteering in a public television station as a photographer. I'm totally self-taught. My husband uh, sent me a, a Nikon camera. I say that not because I'm pushing Nikon, but it was a very good piece of equipment. So I just 
And starting with good equipment is not trivial. It's really part of the whole thing. So what I saw, I captured because I, I, that worked. And so I became a photographer, uh, WGBY, in Springfield, Massachusetts. <laughs> and they were renovating their studios. And the architect came over to me. He saw that I was doing some work. He said, you know, do you know how to take pictures of architecture? I said, oh, sure. Of course, never did in my life. In fact, I had to borrow his lens. It's a special architectural lens. But somehow I had a knack for that. And it clicked both metaphorically and otherwise. And so I, one thing led to another. And I worked for a number of architectural firms, published a book called Modern Landscape Architecture. And that book was enough of a reason for someone to invite me to apply for a mid-career fellowship at Harvard, which changed my life. Uh, it was at the Graduate School of Design. They, it was called the Loeb Fellowship, and they gave it to architects and planners, and occasionally they would give it to architectural photographers. So while I was at Harvard, where they paid me to do anything I wanted, if you can imagine, and I desperately missed science. So I literally lived at the Science Center taking every course I could with Stephen Jay Gould. I don't know if your audience knows that name and some other amazing people, E.O. Wilson. And somebody suggested that I sit in on this class with this chemist that he was really very good at explaining things visually. And sure enough, I sat in on this class and I was blown away. He was clearly very visual. Now, to remind you, I'm a, I was in my 40s, and these are all freshmen. I walk up to him at the end. I said, you know, I'd really like to invite myself to your lab. What do you think? He said, yeah, sure, you know, what was he going to say, right? I go to his lab. They just got a paper accepted to science. I saw their images. I said, let me give it a shot. <laughs> and uh, we got the cover. And then, and it turns out he was very well known, very respected, George Whitesides. And he said to me, Felice, stay with this. You're doing something no one's doing, really. There are people in various labs who are very good photographers of their work, but I'm more of a generalist. I don't even know what to call myself. Maybe a visual science journalist, I, I don't know. But it's all, it's all over the place. I photograph and represent a whole spectrum of the disciplines. And one thing led to another, and I wound up at the Edgerton Center at MIT in 1994. And little by little, MIT is a place where they carve out a spot if you're doing something valuable, no matter what your credentials. And there I've been. I did have a stint at Harvard for a few years, but uh, MIT is more of my culture, let's put it that way. And so I've been there for all these years. Uh, I've, I was in the School of Science. Bob Silby, the Dean of Science, gave me that position. And eventually, when I came back from Harvard, I, I'm, I'm now in, in a number of departments, mostly chemical engineering and me mechanical engineering. But I also work for the news office, which allows me to go all over the place, even beyond those uh, disciplines. So. I have to tell you, the best part of what I do is, besides the learning, but to see that 
really the department boundaries are breaking down. There's work in chemi that looks exactly like mechanical and it's really exciting. It's, so I even introduce people to each other that don't even know. I have the best position in the world and if any of your listeners would like to get in touch with me, maybe we can, you know, yeah. give us a, give them a, an email because I'd love to encourage the younger people to consider doing what I'm doing. There are not a lot of people doing this, and there should be. There should be a cadre of people on every campus who could help researchers. I serve the research community mm -hmm. to help the research think visually because that's how we draw people into what we're doing. Absolutely. That's, the, that's what I'm hopefully trying to do. I think that's a perfect transition to our first question for you. Yeah, and I mean, even the same thing we think about when we do outreach bringing people in visually, we try to have the most like beautiful and like flashy things yeah. out there to get their attention. Um, you are a part of like a seminar series here at the University yes. of Minnesota that has been talking about how we perceive things and especially your is the perception and re the representation of science. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the parts they brought up was an artist's job is defamiliarization. So to make things strange and disrupt the habitual thinking that we find ourselves in. Um, but you almost take that from a different perspective because you try to make things that maybe aren't super familiar to the general public and you try to change them into a way like not withstanding like redoing an image but taking that piece and making it more familiar to people. Well, let's say, first of all, I, I, for, I forgive me for being stringent on what I'm about to say, but yeah. I am not an artist. I go out of my way immediately to telling you that I'm not an artist. I'm not trained in art. That's not my intention. Uh, my intention is for you not to pay attention to me, but to pay attention to the science that I'm imaging. And so, Artists use the same tools I use, but mostly to express themselves or to put some sort of political piece connected to it. I want you to look at the science in my pictures. So none of my pictures work without text. I mean, some people hang, them, hang these images up and they might look like art, but that's not what I want you to consider. Art is in the eye of the beholder. There you go, there you go, exactly. So the intent is for you to be excited about the pictures enough to ask questions about the science. And I think that a lot of people can do what I do. I'm not, I don't think I'm doing anything special. It just is that I happen to love the subject matter, and so that maybe comes through. But the, this, I, I sort of like to call the work more design, in the sense I'm designing an image in order for the information to be clear, clearly communicated. It's like graphic designers do the same. I'm just, I happen to be, my material is scientific data and, and um, you know, research. So um, it's, it's more about, I agree with you about embracing people to come and look. That's the first step of what I do when, when I'm publishing for books and stuff. Get them to draw themselves into the image and make it accessible. 
and not intimidating. Science is scary for most people. Even some of the smartest people I know don't know anything about science. It's terrifying. And they would say, oh, well, I never did very well. And well, that's not that, you know, that's because you had lousy teachers, right? Mm -hmm. But why not use pictures as a means of drawing them in? This is what you were saying. Mm -hmm. But eventually it is for them to understand what it is that they're seeing, that it's about scientific phenomena. So that's my soapbox. No, I appreciate that. Another <laughs> another podcast episode, perhaps, would be debating yeah. what is art. Well, but that, well that's, yeah. that's true. But, no, but, yeah, you know, yeah. um, but the point is well taken. And the flip side of that, Steph and I were talking about, is this idea of defamiliarizing on the one hand and, and embracing and, and bringing people in for accessibility on the other hand. I was curious to whether you find that you can help scientists have a new perspective on their own work through what you're doing? Yes, that's the most exciting part. <laughs> when they actually say to me, I never thought of this. And in fact, I, what I do is I ask sometimes for them to, to create a sample that would be more communicative and frankly more aesthetically interesting. And when I ask them that, they sometimes say, I've learned something in your request for me to create this new thing. And then and then they look at it, they see their work in a different perspective. See, this is the pro this is not nothing brilliant, but the challenge is these folks have been working on their material or whatever for months, maybe even years. They cannot see it with a fresh eye. Mm-hmm. And they are assuming that when they make a picture or a graphic that I'm going to see what they want me to see. And it is not the case because they are mentally deleting all the extraneous material in their busy picture and they think that I'm going to do the same thing. This is why the very first question I at we run a series of workshops when I see their work and as a group we you know uh, discuss it. I ask them the other people in the group, what is the first thing you see? And invariably, it's different from what the creator of the image wants them to see. Again, they're too familiar with it. And so collaborative groups, well, those, those are the only kind, I suppose, but to bring people from different disciplines together, it's absolutely fantastic, and it works. I am bombarded with requests to create these workshops. But I, I'm not the only one who could do this. There are a lot of people who could do this. See, my hope is that at some point, every university would have a team of illustrators, animators, photographers, data visualization people in one place, a center for visualizing science and engineering. And by the way, bringing in the humanists. The social scientists, the economists, they don't know anything about visually representing ideas. You know, they, Wouldn't that be amazing if we could understand this complicated world of theirs with uh, analogies of how social science is studied? And, and so I'm, I am convinced that we live in a visual world. We're bombarded with visuals, and we have to start creating standards. We have to look at pictures that have been published. We have to ask, has this been manipulated? 
how far you permitted to go with enhanced images in science. Not very far, by the way. That's why I suggest everybody reads my new book. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Thank you. Yeah, it's actually, the, the, the book is called Picturing Science and Engineering, but it really is a picture about photographing small things. And um, it's intended for the general public. And I have the first chapter, believe it or not, is how to make pictures on a flatbed scanner. And if you have a certain kind of scanner, it doesn't have to be crazy expensive, that you could set the DPI, the dots per inch, you can take the most amazing pictures of objects, and they don't have to be flat. They, they are three-dimensional objects. I have a picture of eggs mm. on my scanner, pears, tomatoes, and the detail is crazy wonderful. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to get the reader to see you don't have to be brilliant to start making pictures. The idea, the more pictures you make and the more you pay attention to deciding whether they're good or not, the better photographer you are. It's nothing brilliant. So I take people through all the process of using a camera. I talk about depth of field, the basics of exposure. Then I go into some microscopy, but just, just to alert the scientists what are the potential. And then I, there's a chapter on presenting your work. And in that chapter, I talk about creating metaphor in order to somehow depict stuff that you cannot depict. And I have another chapter on image enhancement. And that's something that not enough scientists think about. It's very easy to change the histogram in your images by increasing contrast. But see, as you do that, you're also manipulating the data. So I bring that up. And there are certain rules that various journals want us to follow. And it's just a conversation that we don't talk enough about. Mm -hmm. And so, and yeah, no, I think that I, I'm told that I get, we got great reviews. And now I'm on to my next book. <laughs> we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes for sure. Thank you. That would be lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then your previous book was No Small Matter, which yeah. also hit on small things, small. which is a lot of what we do in a Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology. I bet. Sure. Um, so do you have any recommendations, especially for the scientists, as we think about how we communicate maybe to the general public about what nano means and how we can make that more accessible to people? Well... That, the reason why George Whitesides w wrote the text, which of course is really important to, for this particular book, we knew that we had to make the book basically metaphorical because mm -hmm. you can't see this stuff. And not only can't you see it, I mean, you can see visualization. I mean, I just had lunch with Don Eigler, who uh, some of your scientists, older physicist <laughs> friends would know that Don and his team created something called a quantum corral, where he literally placed atoms in a, cor a corral. Mm -hmm. And I, I talk about it in my talk, this is tangential, but in my talks I show it because, yeah, yes, <laughs> but I, I didn't like the colors that, you know, you can't see this. Mm -hmm. you, you have to your, your listeners have to understand, I'm sure they do, that when something is as small as nano, you, we cannot see it. So what we do is we sense 
the structures with special equipment that are basically numbers. They're, they're numbers that are translated into grayscale and then some, somebody can then start adding color. But you can't see color at the nano level because... And because it's smaller than the it's wavelength of light. It's smaller than the wavelength, <laughs> exactly. It, at photons, you could see in cameras see photons, optical microscopes see photons and you know whatever we mean by seeing but you cannot see stuff on the nano level and so we rep we we visualize it it's a visualization um when i was part of this nsf initial idea most of the people were non-scientists in the the it's a it was outreach Mm -hmm. something that you're doing Mm -hmm. And mostly museum people, museum educators, and I would sit in the audience and all they wanted to talk about was how to represent size. Because that's the really only thing we can grasp at. Mm-hmm. It's not enough. There's, it's, the science is completely different at the nanoscale. We're talking about quantum mechanics, for goodness sake. So the book, getting back to the book, was how are we going to discuss things, frankly, that I personally don't still to this day don't understand, <laughs> and neither do the scientists. In fact, any scientist will, any nano scientist working on, on quantum level will say, if anybody tells you they understand it, you know that they don't know what they're talking <laughs> about. So how do you conceivably represent that? So basically, all most of the pictures in the book are metaphors for the concepts behind it. Mm-hmm. We're not showing what is going on. How do you show? I mean, you there the, the slit the slit experiment can show that uh, f- there are f- there are wave wave functions as as well as electrons moving, but it's it's not a book full of electron microscopy. No, images. it is not. Yeah. Exa- exactly, exactly. It's just trying to bring, draw people. There's one picture. It's a, it's a picture of a glass apple, because it was my husband's and I loved it. And the glass apple is casting a square shadow. Because nice. I, I faked it. And the idea was that this is impossible. And that's what quantum mechanics is. You know? <laughs> Again, it's not answering any questions. It's just trying to draw people into sort of paying attention. You can't see this stuff. You could, you could deduce things, but you can't see it. And that's what this probably, in front of me, I'm seeing yeah, material. So we probably only have time for one more question. Yeah, well, yeah, so um, as you were saying, I mean, we talk about the size scale, but the one thing that we like to talk about when we try to get people captivated for outreach is just how things change properties when we take them from bulk things that we can actually physically interact with for, compared to nanoparticles. So we have iron oxide, microparticles that behave one way, and then we also have ferrofluid, which is the nanoparticle, which I know you've imaged I have. Before, oh, that's very it cool. Is, it's beautiful and super captivating, and the kids love it. They do. But one of the harder things we have it's to super, explain is actually what happens when you break gold down onto the nanoscale and it changes colors because of the way the light interacts. And I don't know if you know anything. So for our, our listening audience, yeah, we have exactly. here on the table a, gold, a thing of gold flake, which looks like you would expect gold uh-huh. to look like. But then we have two vials of one is sort of maroon liquid and the other is sort of a plum-colored, grape-colored liquid. 
or Kool-Aid colored, I don't know, uh-huh. um, which are both gold also, but they're gold nanoparticles. And the, the reason for the color change doesn't have anything to do with what we normally think of as color. It's the way the light interacts yeah. with the... Yeah, but... That is the way we see color. Sorry, it's not the traditional. No, it's not pigment. Okay, so it's like a morpho butterfly. Yeah, yeah. so it's the structure. Yeah, and in fact, what's challenging is because they're on the nanoscale, nothing's bouncing off. The light's actually interacting through a process called surface plasmon resonance, which for our listeners, this is not not going to be helpful. This is the first sentence on the Wikipedia page. Surface plasmon resonance is the resonant oscillation of conduction electrons at the interface between negative and positive permittivity material stimulated by incident light. And there's a way to turn off your eyes. Exactly. And there's never been a good image I found that would help... So maybe we could do that. So if we were to try to do something to explain how do gold nanoparticles have how would the colors you workshop that they us? do. Well, first of all, we'd, wouldn't that be an interesting exercise mm-hmm. to, for as a group to start drawing what exactly is happening to the light? I'm assuming we are seeing light reflect, wavelengths reflecting off, which is giving different, different colors. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that that's why we're seeing... Yeah, they're two different sizes, so we see two different colors right. because the way they interact with the light. Yeah, and so, but that would, be, that would be interesting. I mean, I, I have no idea what that looks like, mm-hmm. but that would be such an interesting... That's what we, we did this with my... I, I had a, a project called Picturing to Learn, right. where we had students and science students... Gra- sorry, graphic students and science students working together on a- an exercise exactly like this. They had to visually express why do we see sunsets. Nice. And so it was all about reflecting certain wavelengths. But, I mean, I don't know the answer to this, but I sure would like to find that out <laughs> because, okay, and here are my final word. The, the act of making a representation teaches you the science. It, in my opinion, it should be part of everybody's education. Hard to, hard to talk about. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank um, you. Thank you so much. Oh, my joy. This is great fun. Yeah. I wish I knew kept more chemistry. My colleagues, if they hear this, are going to be very disappointed mm. that I couldn't go right to the answer. But We, no, we discussed fine. before we were starting. We were like, should we put her on the spot? To it's okay. Knows it's an exercise. Ab- yeah. Absolutely. Couldn't yeah. you just see doing this? Yeah. yeah. Well, just as like a side question, I don't know if I'll include it, but do you think because you're not a scientist, that's what can give you fresh perspective. Yes. And then how do you think that, like, I as a scientist, besides really thinking about it, is there a way that you encourage people to get fresh perspective on yeah. what they're doing? Yeah, and that's actually that's what we do at the workshops. We, they, they, they send me their graphics, their draft graphics, and then we, each, each of us at the workshop, we push them to take a step back and explain it as if you're talking to a non-expert. Mm-hmm. You know, that that should also be part of everybody's education. Yeah, that's part of what yeah. we... So our the podcast is a, is a great, fun project, um, but the main thing we do with our graduate students is a blog, and so it's mostly written by, by grad students, and they go through three, four, five drafts with a peer editor where they're taking... Ah. They take their first kind of concept, and then the peer editor helps them craft it to be truly accessible. But it's text. Public. So it's text, exactly. You see, nobody is doing it in, in visual. Is that crazy? Yeah. We no, should do it. It's just hard, though, because, like, 
for those, I normally write a blog post about something that has inspired me, and I already have the analogy, the thing that's cool right. that I'm going to go, but you have to come up with come it, up right. with it yeah. on demand, which I'm and, and the coming up with it itself is a means of clarification, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. all metaphors fall apart. And co- the conversation, it clarifies it firmly. I mean, it's a very important exercise that I think should be in every class. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. So that's it for this episode of the Sustainable Nano Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you again to Felice Frankel for talking with us for this interview. Thanks to Stephanie Mitchell for conducting the interview and to Paige Kinsley for talking with me about being in grad school during COVID-19. This episode was edited by Natalie Hudson-Smith and our music is by PC3 and Dexter Britton. This podcast is produced by the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which is funded by the National Science Foundation. Our usual disclaimer, though, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the National Science Foundation. Want more Sustainable Nano? You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcast or Stitcher, and now on the National Science Foundation's Science Zone Radio. Or listen to any of our episodes and see show notes at podcast.sustainable-nano.com. We also have a blog with close to 300 posts, mostly written by graduate students in the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which you can find at sustainable-nano.com. And you can reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Sustainable Nano, all one word. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks again for listening to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. And remember, even small things can make a big difference in life.